Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to this Cato Institute event. My name is Jordan Cohen. I'm a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy studies here at the Cato Institute. I do not look like Justin Logan. Unfortunately, he was supposed to be here kind of doing this job, but he can't make it. So I will be here instead. In 2019, French President Macron uh, declared NATO brain dead and warned other European countries that they could no longer rely on American security guarantees. However, Russia's invasion and escalation of the conflict in Ukraine has produced big changes in European states that have restored the brain dead alliance to quote unquote consciousness, but without much consensus on how to live a good life. The news over the last 24 hours exemplifies this. Following weeks of talk capped by a summit in Madrid, Turkey's President Erdogan agreed to lift his block on Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And as a result, the alliance has formally invited Sweden and Finland to join the alliance. NATO expansion is a significant single impact from this war. Beyond that, questions about unity and disunity in NATO are rapidly emerging. Relatedly, questions are arising about Western security guarantees for Ukraine despite these seemingly having a negative impact on war negotiations. The war in Ukraine has also resulted in Poland and the Baltic states wanting more of a US military presence in Europe. And this is a request that may seemingly be shared by the Biden administration. It seems somewhat unclear. And finally, there are questions about European strategic autonomy that are emerging as a result of, this, of the collective action against Russia. I'm delighted to have a very esteemed panel today. Uh, on my left, uh, Barry Posen is a, the Ford International Professor of Political Science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Director Emeritus of the MIT Security Studies Program, and serves on Executive Committee of Seminar 21. He is the author of many books, including Restraint, A New Foundation for U.S. Grand Strategy, Inadvertent Escalation, Conventional War and Nuclear Risks, and the Sources of Military Doctrine. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2016, he was appointed the Henry A. Kissinger Chair, Visiting Chair in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress, John W. Klug's John W. Klug Center. He is the 2017 recipient of the International Security Studies Section, International Studies Association Award, Distinguished Scholar Award, and in 2019, received the Notre Dame International Security Center Lifetime Achievement Award. On my right, Nicole Koenig is a DAAD, American Institute of Contemporary German Studies Research Fellow, and the Deputy Director of the, uh, and excuse my French here, the Jacques Delors Center at the Heritage School in Berlin. She leads the center's think tank work on EU foreign and security policy, institutions and democracy, as well as migration policy. Her own research focuses on European and German security and defense policy. European Union NATO relations and Franco-German cooperation. Prior to joining the center, she worked for various European think tanks and universities. Before I pass it off to Nicole to give her remarks, I just wanna remind everybody uh, for Q&A, if you are here, stay seated, raise your hand, and somebody can bring a mic to you. If you are watching online, however, you can either Mention the hashtag CatoFP and the fact that you're uh, hashtag CatoFP. Comment on Facebook, or just comment in the website box uh, where you are watching the event. So with that, Nicole, would you like to? Yes. Uh, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. My last week uh, in Washington um, during my DID fellowship, 
Uh, and thank you very much, of course, to Cato Institute um, for inviting me. Um, so the question is, uh, war in Ukraine, what are the implications for European security? And I think what is very clear, if we look at the past four months, um, is that it has really been uh, a wake-up call for Europeans uh, and also for the European Union, which I'm mostly working on. And I think the war um, has surprised many in Europe, um, at least the scale of it. Uh, and I think it has moved a few red lines and it has moved them quite fast. Um, and I just want to mention a few examples. I think the first example um, is the decision to finance, to jointly finance uh, weapon deliveries for Ukraine. So this happened just four days into the, into the war. We had this decision um, to first uh, jointly finance uh, weapons with 500 million through the so-called European Peace Facility. And this was a significant shift if you consider certain strategic cultures of European member states. So um, the state that I come from, Germany, this was certainly a very unexpected shift um, especially after the, the months preceding the war, where Germany had, in fact, blocked the weapon deliveries from, from several member states. But it was equally surprising for a range of other member states, notably Finland and Sweden, um, who have also uh, had that very firmly enshrined in their strategic cultures. Um, and so this was, was significant. And if you look at the scale of it, uh, in the end, over different packages, um, your financing uh, reached two billion, uh, and this is, if you consider the total of this instrument, financial instrument at the EU level, the European Peace Facility, um, it's uh, more than one third of the whole amount foreseen until 2027. So that's quite significant, and this is, of course, also in addition uh, to national weapon. I think the second point, and you've mentioned it, was of course uh, in mid-May. Um, significant shift yet again for Sweden and Finland that uh, decided after decades of non-alignment, uh, military non-alignment, to apply for NATO membership. Uh, and as you said today, um, we had this historic moment uh, of NATO granting um, this, um, yeah, in inviting uh, Sweden and Finland to join. A third uh, shift that was perhaps a bit less noticed over here, but was certainly noticed uh, in Europe was uh, happened on 1st of June with the Danish referendum. So Denmark held a referendum on the so-called opt-out on the common security and defense policy, which it had negotiated in 1992 with the Maastricht Treaty. Um, so Denmark hasn't participated in the military part of the common security and defense policy uh, for the past three decades. Uh, but in June, there was a referendum and there was an overwhelming majority of 67% voting in favor of scrapping this opt-out. So Denmark will now be a full participant of the common security and defense policy, including the military part, including defense industrial um, issues. And uh, with this, all EU member states uh, now participate fully in the common security and defense policy. And of course, what has been noted here, um, perhaps mostly, um, and which is also perhaps the most significant shift we have seen is the very important increases in terms of defense spending. So the European Commission, together with the European Defense Agency, published a report where they estimated that in the coming years we will uh, see additional defense spending from the member states, from the EU member states, 
um, of up to 200 billion. Um, of course, uh, one of the significant players here um, was Germany, who, again, three days into the invasion of Ukraine, um, decided to create uh, a 100 billion special fund for the military and to spend 2% uh, from now on, uh, year after year. And this has been, again, voted with a very significant majority in the Bundestag in early June. Uh, and this is a major shift for a country that, that has been spending more around 1.4% in the past year. So the question is, of course, we have seen all these shifts. Um, we have seen all this unity. Um, and you, you asked about European strategic autonomy. So what we have not seen uh, in the past months is a big discourse on European strategic autonomy. And we have seen that much more during the Trump administration. And what struck me uh, during my time here is that, nevertheless, when I spoke to people here in Washington, what I've heard a lot was this feeling, ah, but there's still this French-inspired scheme of a European army that might duplicate with NATO, uh, and this is something very dangerous. Um, and, and it struck me because this is not the feeling that I got from Berlin or Brussels. And I, I, I want to stress that there is no secret scheme for a European army in the making. And I want to clarify that based on, on a few points. I mean, the first point is, yes, there is a, an intergovernmental instrument to finance weapon deliveries, but it's not part of the EU budget, so it's a decision of the member states. So we don't have a common European defense budget. In fact, the EU budget excludes military and operational expenditure. The second point um, is there is no significant EU military headquarters. So we have a military planning and conduct capability, as it's called, which is in a nucleus uh, uh, civil military or military headquarters. But at the moment, it has around 60 staff. If you compare that to NATO headquarters with around 4,000 staff, then you see it's actually rather small. Then, of course, one of the big uh, issues always with the EU is so-called or yeah, the idea of the European army is that every decision uh, requires unanimity uh, among all EU member states. And unlike in the case of NATO, this also includes neutral uh, states such as Austria and Ireland. Therefore, again, this is a barrier to sometimes creating something very forceful in the military domain. And finally, there are also some, some legal boundaries. And I think this is important. So if you look at the EU treaties, um, then it's quite clear um, that the EU should focus on crisis management beyond the European territory, so uh, in other words, not on collective defense. And if you look at the EU strategic uh, compass on security and defense, so the EU's new strategic document, which has been published in March, you will also see that it really underlines NATO's primacy in collective defense. And I think if you now look the look at the strategic compass that was published, uh, concept sorry that was that was um, agreed uh, today um, in Madrid, then you will also see there is a very clear emphasis on collective defense. So that said, a few points to to sort of take away this myth of the European Army, um, and and also to an extent the idea of strategic autonomy, which as I said is not very prominent at this stage. I think the question that is more pertinent is really to, to ask ourselves, um, to what extent can we have a stronger European pillar within NATO? To what extent can we have more European contributions within NATO? Uh, and I think, um, you know, we, we have heard the NATO Secretary General that now um, 
we, we will massively enhance troop readiness from 40,000 to 300,000 troops on high alert. I think this is quite a big number, which I think some in Europe were perhaps surprised to hear that. And I think it's, we're still waiting to hear what that really means in terms of contributions. But what we have seen, I think, in the, in the short term and in the past months is that there was, again, not really an emphasis on European strategic autonomy, but a strong reliance um, on the United States, both in terms of the support we have seen towards Ukraine in terms of the weapon deliveries, but also in terms of the reinforcement um, of NATO's eastern flank with around 100,000 um, U.S. troops uh, currently stationed in Europe. I think we will see uh, quite significant European contributions as well. Um, we have already heard from a few member states what these contributions might look like. For example, Germany already said that they want to contribute 15,000 troops to this uh, high readiness uh, goal. We have also heard that Germany seeks to reinforce um, its, uh, its uh, battalion in Lithuania uh, to a brigade size force by 2023. We have seen that the UK is also expected to do the same for Estonia. So we see some movements, um, but I think uh, we will not see a full rebalancing uh, within NATO in the short term. But I, I do think at the same time, that the pressure um, on Europeans to, to take on, on more of this burden within this new concept will rise. Uh, and, and therefore, um, I think it's important for Europeans to really reflect on what that means going forward. And I just want to say three things um, based on the four past months that, that I think should, should happen, uh, and perhaps also how the U.S. should you know, maybe slightly push Europeans um, on this path. So the first is um, what I think is very important. We've, we're seeing increases of defense spending in a lot of member states. We have heard NATO SecGen say that now nine um, NATO members are meeting the 2% goal, and, and by 2024 it will be 19, and then five more have promised um, to meet it as well. So we're seeing these changes. We're seeing increases. A lot of member states have announced these increases, but I think there's still a danger uh, that there will be uncoordinated increases, that we will have fragmentation. And if you look at the numbers, so since 2014, we have seen an increase of European defense spending steadily. And we have also seen a lot of efforts from the European Union to push for more consolidation, for more joint spending, for more joint procurement. But in 2020, the share of joint investment in the European Union was still only at 11%. And that's far below the 35%, which is the EU target in this field. And, and if you look at estimates, I mean, there are a lot of different estimates, but, but a lot of them estimate that um, the losses from this fragmentation within the EU amount to sort of one, one third of the total cost. Um, so I think this, this is very important to push Europeans to consolidate more, to spend better. There is this objective for sure, and the European Commission just... Um, it has a new uh, initiative for joint procurement, and it's also going to um, provide some financial incentives to that end. But these financial incentives, at least in the short term, only amount to 500 million for two years. And if you consider, again, the amount of 200 billion increases in the coming years, you can see that this incentive is not massive. 
Uh, and therefore, it will, be, will depend on the member states and on their willingness to overcome narrow industrial interests uh, and to actually forge these consortia and agree on joint standards. Uh, and that will be the real game change, change in terms of consolidation. So I think, of course, here in the US, this is sometimes viewed um, as a potential risk uh, to perhaps the national defense industry. But nevertheless, I think this you, Americans should push for greater consolidation, um, even if that may mean that sometimes European products are bought instead of American ones. Second point, which is important, I said every decision is taken by unanimity, um, which I think in the foreseeable future on military matters within the EU would, will remain the case. This is, again, part of the treaties. Uh, but I think we could see some more movements uh, in terms of qualified majority voting in some areas related to the EU's economic power, notably on sanctions. So the Juncker Commission a few years back already proposed introducing qualified majority voting on sanctions. And I think we have seen in the past months that a single member state can hold up, for example, discussions on an oil embargo for about four weeks um, to get concessions. And I think this is problematic because, after all, I said the EU is not a great military power, but it is an economic power. In order to wield this economic power, especially if it's seeking to enlarge, then it needs to become more flexible. Um, and the third point um, is, is really, and I think that's, that's the most important point, is, is I think we have seen a lot of announcement. There has been a huge shock. There has been a change in threat perception. But I think we still have to cement this change in mindset and to move away from this, this post-Cold War um, order. And I think it will be very important for European decision makers in the coming months to, to take the publics along. Um, and if, if you listen to the discourse from the, coming, from the past weeks, for example, the German um, foreign and economy ministers already warned there's a kind of war fatigue coming, surging. We have um, inflation, similar here, of course, which is uh, playing an important role and which will rise as probably as the top concern together with, with energy prices and, uh, and potential cuts in the coming months. So I think the real test um, for European publics also on how much they're actually willing to pay um, for Ukraine is still to come uh, in autumn and winter, especially because of the, the high energy dependency that we had towards Russia. Uh, and I think uh, in many ways this will yeah, uh, raise the stakes uh, and also put a lot of pressure on, on the peace, on a potential peace deal um, that we're all hoping for. Thank you so much. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, we are taking questions both in person and online. So when we get to Q&A to ask a question, just please stay seated and raise your hand if you're in person and we'll bring the mic to you. If you're online, you can use the question box on the website, comment on Facebook, or use the hashtag CatoFP on Twitter. Um, with that, uh, Barry, would you like to? So I think what we're seeing in Europe and in the United States is what any international relations theorist might call a balancing effort, balance of power, balance of threat. Um, threat typically has two basic components. You're assessing the other side's intentions. And you're assessing the other side's capabilities. And I think what we've seen, for the most part, in the reactions that 
Paul spelled out so well, is a big shift in the perception of Russian intentions, just exactly how malign Russian intentions are. Less discussed, but of equal importance, should be an assessment of Russian capabilities. And in general, I would say that the war actually shows us that Russian capabilities are less than I think, to some extent, we have some cross-cutting pressures here. But the pressures to which nations in the West are largely responding are threat assessment questions. Now, I'm going to bracket that and say, I think we're overdoing it a bit. And I have my reasons for believing that, and we can talk about it in, in Q&A. But I think the observation is fair. Everything that Nicole said is right. People are seeing a much bigger Russia that they think has many, many ambitions. This is holding aside the kind of generally nasty way that Russia makes war, which isn't doing its reputation any good either. Right? So we, we are seeing balancing, and much of the activity you're seeing should be looked at in that light. And when we look at balancing, we're always looking at how states are cooperating together, and we imagine they're cooperating for a common purpose. But we should also remember that all states are also out for themselves. And everything that happens in international politics is an occasion for states to, to do that, look after for themselves. So I think we should at least reflect on the way this war has proven to be an opportunity, an ugly and unhappy opportunity, but an opportunity for various um, uh, actors to pursue long-held goals. So for the Americans, especially for the foreign policy establishment, it's a chance to double down on the strategy that we've pursued last 30 years, which is often captured in this town under the rubric of US-led liberal world order or something like that. Right? It's basically a liberal hegemony story. Right? And NATO has always been central to that liberal hegemony project, which is basically to ensure that the United States is the most capable state in the world by a substantial margin, and that most of the rules in the, in, in the world order are set in a way that is, is quite consistent with American interests and doesn't have that much regard for the interests of some states that really are quite different from us and have a very different view. So that's opportunity one, and you can see the way the establishment has stampeded in that direction. Um, opportunity two is for the Eastern Europeans. The new member states have never been happy with NATO strategy, the so-called, people use the word tripwire, but basically it's small forces that are meant to be earnest money for a larger NATO commitment in the event that these countries are attacked. So it's basically a message to the Russians, if you attack Lithuania or Latvia, Estonia, you're going to run into NATO forces, NATO forces are going to die, and you're going to be in a war with the biggest military alliance in history. That's the deterrent message. And people have been comfortable with that, unless, of course, you live in Eastern Europe or you live in the Baltic states, in which case you want something else. What you want is something that's similar to the way NATO defended the Federal Republic of Germany in the Cold War, which is to say a long line of heavily armed armored divisions basically capable of populating the entire front with vast firepower supported by thousands of tactical fighters. Right? Actually, if you look at the length of real estate that encompassed the borders of the Baltic states, it's not that different. It's actually a big project. And for them, this is a moment. And you can see that they've been pressing from the get-go that tripwire is no good anymore. We want to be defended. They're going to get something. They're not going to get what they want, but they're going to get something. Whether that something really makes any sense or not is still an open question. Um, I believe that the Western Europeans here are, I've always viewed them as being cleverer than they are portrayed in the American debate. 
And uh, I think this is, a, I think what Nicole said about the European Union's relative quiet here is not an accident. This is a perfect opportunity to induce the Americans not only to double down on a commitment to NATO, but to put forces in place that make it impossible for them to back out. So this is, this is really a moment, and the Americans seem disinclined to think about the implications of what it is that they're doing, but once thousands and thousands of American forces are camped all along the eastern borders of NATO, they won't come out for years to come. And so basically the Americans are locked in. And we can continue to complain about burden sharing all we want, but the Europeans are now in the catbird seat. So our efforts to induce them to, to share the burden are going to come a cropper. Now, in the first instance, you're going to see a lot of activity. We've seen a lot of activity. The real question is what's going to happen over time. And a lot of serious observers, including Nicole, uh, in her conversation, has kind of raised some questions about whether this is sustainable. I suspect that because of the structure of the situation, it's not sustainable. Finland and Sweden, these are countries that have had a dilemma. They've been talking about NATO membership for a long time. The weight of evidence for them, so long as the Russians weren't too energetic, was to continue with what they knew. But there's one key lesson from what has happened, right? And that is NATO feels much more comfortable waging war on the real estate of countries that are already members of the alliance. Once you're a member of the alliance, the commitment of the United States to take nuclear risks for you is baked in the cake. This is the one thing missing from the relationship with Ukraine. President Biden was very clear about that, very clear on what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And this has to do with nuclear weapons, nuclear risks, and nuclear escalation. Every new alliance member state, the United States is assuming a nuclear risk, right? And we're getting ready to do that with Finland and Sweden. Now that we will have a very desultory debate about this because most Americans forget about it, and the elite doesn't want people to talk about it. Right? But that's what's getting ready to happen. Right? And finally, we'll just come to Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians have long wanted to be in NATO. It's in their constitution. Um, for the last eight years, they've grown ever closer to the alliance and ever closer to the United States. That's one of the reasons the war has gone as well as it has for them. Um, but what they want is to be under the Article 5 commitment, not on the other edge of it. They've gotten lots of commitment from us, surprising amount, surprising amount of risk acceptance but they're still not exactly on the right side of the extended deterrence commitment, and therefore, NATO force, the cavalry's not coming to the rescue. We'll send a gun, send weapons, send airplanes, right? Uh, but we're not gonna wage war, right? And the Ukrainians, Ukrainians, like the Eastern Europeans, wanna fix it so in the next time the Russians get ambitious, the Russians have to imagine that they're in a war with NATO. Now, everything about the conduct of the war is gonna be driven in part towards that objective, and what you're seeing now is this flow of capabilities coming from Western European countries, all of the interactions with Western European NATO militaries. This is designed to create facts. It's not just designed to create the fact that the Russians have a really hard time moving the front in Ukraine's direction, which is a great thing, right? But it's also designed to create another fact, which is when the smoke clears from this war, however it clears, right? The Ukrainians want to be in the best possible position, position to get into NATO. So all of these countries have interests that are raised by this event, right? And they have opportunities that are raised by this event. So that's all on the threat side. I was just say a few words on the capabilities side. Right? Flip side on the capabilities side, right? Um, 
I'm in a very small minority of people who believe that European states are able to take care of themselves against the Russians. Um, there's many more people in the European Union or in non-NATO Europe than there are living in Russia. The GDP is vastly larger. By most measures, they spend three or four or five times as much on defense. A quarter of the world's most capable defense industrial operations are European. Two of the world's five or six principal nuclear powers are European. In principle, there is no reason why Europeans can't defend themselves against Russia. No, no reason at all, right? They simply do not want to do it for themselves because of a whole range of sacrifices, compromises, changes in hierarchy, inconveniences that would follow from doing it for themselves. And they don't have to do it for themselves because the Americans are eagle, eager to do it for them. Now, if anything, right, this war has shown that along many dimensions, right, the Europeans are even in a better place to look after themselves because we've seen many, many debilities in the Russian forces revealed. Right? And these are, these are long-standing debilities in the Russian forces, plus some new ones. They're not very good at logistics. They're thin on their tactical and operational command and control. Um, as it stands now, they're between two schools on their personnel practices, so they are neither a good volunteer army nor a good conscript army. This is a new problem for them. Um, much of their advanced technology weapon systems turn out to depend on imported components from the West, right? Which not only means that it's probably true that some of their systems are already compromised to Western intelligence, it means that they're going to have a hell of a hard time um, replacing those systems. And then finally, one of my hobbies is armored fighting vehicles. Uh, they're not designed, just aren't very good. And Western produced anti-tank weapons to include very good anti-tank weapons designed and produced in Ukraine turn out to be quite deadly relative to Russian armored vehicles. Now, this doesn't mean it's a piece of cake if the Russian army comes and camps on your doorstep. They're good at a few things. They're really good at throwing artillery at you. They're really good at blowing things to pieces, right? They're good at that, right? And the Ukrainians, sadly, don't have enough assets to be able to deal with that problem. This would not be a NATO European problem except by choice. If they want to have that problem, they can have it. If they don't want to have it, they can probably solve it. Right? So on balance, we've seen that the Russian capabilities are less than we thought. Right? So my own view is that the case for more burden sharing, better burden sharing, in fact, the case for European Union strategic autonomy has never been better. Right? But the chances of either European strategic autonomy or even sustained, more equitable burden sharing in the alliance are actually quite low right now. Thank you so much, Barry. So I'm going to exert moderator privilege and ask the first question. And then we will open it up to the audience, both in person and online. So both of you talked about the future here, right? The future of European security. And Nicole, you mentioned the idea of possible war fatigue. And Barry, you mentioned that Ukraine wants to, rightfully so, and the countries back in Ukraine want to be in the best position possible when the war ends. So my question is, does the length of the war impact the final outcomes? Right, that includes things like new security guarantees in Europe or new weapons trading programs in Europe. 
So what does, like, is there a difference if the war ends next week versus two years from now for the future of kind of collective European security? You want to start, Nicole? Go ahead. <laughs> well, I actually had some observations about that in my notes, which I did not share with you. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you some speculations. Um, first of all, I think there's two sets of issues, and um, both of them need to thought about, be thought about, but they're very hard to think about. I think duration does matter. I think if for somehow, some way, this thing petered out pretty quick, some of what we're seeing would also start petering out pretty quick, right? Um, doesn't mean people, you know, people have planted flags and put markers down. They're going to have to do something for a while, but nevertheless, it, I think it in, increases the, the the rate at which all this energy kind of gets dissipated, right? So I, I think that's right. But I, I also think that we have to stop, you know, Napoleon used to say, when asked how he beat his enemies, he used to say, that's easy, they made a picture. And what he meant by that is they had one view of how the war would go. And he could, you know, as Muhammad Ali used to say in another context, float like a butterfly, sling like a bee, right? So we, we have to get it out of our head that what appears to be the likely course of the war, which is, I think, a path towards ugly, high-cost stalemate, right? with the Russians sitting on quite a lot of Ukrainian territory. That's the most likely course of the war. But we have to understand that there's many things that can happen. Mistakes get made, past exonerative. Um, but you know, we could have, the war could escalate. The war could escalate in terms of targets, could escalate in terms of participants, could escalate in terms of kinds of weapons used. And the sources of escalation are many. Right? And we don't know. And escalation could change the game in any of a hundred ways, including if a nuclear weapon or more than one is used, uh, really sh essentially shaping the entire course of modern geopolitical history for the next how many years. I mean, it would be a big thing even if only a handful of tactical nuclear weapons were used in Ukraine. It would change things quite a lot in the world, I think. Change people's behaviors a lot change their propensity to be in alliances, rely on allies, want their own nuclear weapons, the whole proliferation problem gets changed, everything, a lot of things are going to get affected, right? So we have to assimilate that as well, right? So the remarks, I think my own remarks, and, and Nicole can speak for herself, you know, I've made the simplifying assumption, right? My simplifying assumption is the war will go on for probably not five years, but longer than five months, but hey, it's a guess. Yeah, there is a good question. Uh, and, and I think I agree with a lot of things that you said. But I think, and I, and I think most analysts uh, that we hear actually think that it's going to be a longer war and that will be very difficult to find some kind of negotiated settlement considering the red lines that are there in the moment. So that's why I think there is this insistence that you know of, of strengthening the negotiating position of the Ukrainians more, but there I, I do see. And speaking about war fatigue, I do see a problem because I think the longer this goes on, the bigger the restraint camps here, but also in Europe, will become. I mean, if you look, uh, for example, in, in Italy um, at public opinion polls already now, um, it's quite striking that actually this restraint camp, the pacifist camp, is extremely strong. And, and this, the populist party already split over the issue of weapon deliveries to Ukraine. So I think we will have 
actually a need to support Ukraine much more. There's this idea of a Marshall Plan um, for Ukraine uh, that Chancellor Scholz um, brought in. The question here is if you have an ongoing war situation, how do you reconstruct the country at the same time? It's really extremely difficult. And on the other hand, you have this question of weapon deliveries. You have this at the moment very much this political will of saying we will support you as long as needed. Um, but how long can you do that uh, while taking the publics along? And I'm saying this because, of course, the pacifist camp speaking about Germany, the country that I know best, there, there are two arguments, right? So there, there's the argument, which I think is winning the debate at the moment, which is saying we need to support Ukraine because it's a fight for democracy, it's a fight for, for freedom, and we could all be affected very, very quickly. But there's also another camp um, which, which is there, which uh, says, well, you know, the more we deliver weapons, the longer the war gets, the more there will be victims. And this camp very much pushes for some kind of negotiated peace. So I think what we will see um, is potentially the unity that we have seen in the past months, both across the Atlantic and within the European Union, that will, could erode. And I think that's that's a real risk. And if you look again at polls, there was a very interesting poll of the European Council on Foreign Relations. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, which showed how European publics and different member states are divided between the so-called freedom camp, which is the camp that I mentioned before, and a justice camp. And you can see very interestingly in this poll that you have a big difference between the, the, the Polish, who are very strong in the justice camp, obviously also due to their exposed position, and, and the Germans and the Italians um, that have a much bigger peace or restraint camp. And again, so I think you will, you will have a lot of competing pressures, um, unfortunately, if this drags on, which I think is unfortunately likely. Thank you guys so much. The escalation affects a lot, both military and politically, so I appreciate your answers. So again, just as a reminder, uh, we're taking questions in person and online. If you are here and want to ask a question, just raise your hand and somebody will bring a microphone to you. And if you are online, you can comment on the box on the website, comment on Facebook, or use the hashtag CatoFP on Twitter. Um, so with that, questions? Yep. I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a, a former diplomat. Up until very recently, there's been a lot of buzz in Europe. Uh, even in some obscure quarters like the Austrian uh, parliament, that Europe should a little more go its own way, that there should be uh, major structures encompassing military forces across the continent uh, that would uh, work with the NATO structures, but it became pretty murky as to who the top dog would be in an actual operation. And this stems largely from the French-German brigade about a decade ago. So. Where do we stand on that? Is, is there still sort of a, a feeling within Europe that you know, we want to establish our own bailiwick uh, and, and take on the gringos uh, as, as things unfold? Or is, or is this, as this NATO operation against Russia uh, pretty much set all that uh, to sleep? Happy to take a... 
I ventured into the world of studying ESDP many years ago, and, and I think I wrote one article about it. And I wrote and I started working on it in 2003, and it may be published in 2005. And uh, I, I started predicting that more would happen, and I've been wrong ever since. So uh, I think the, the European Union strategic autonomy is is a thing that's already always discussed. There's quite a lot of you know nodding of heads. Um, there's a much bigger organizational effort in Brussels than there was when I first studied this. Um, I don't know if the military staff has grown in size, but certainly the, um, the, the, the staff and the bureaucracy of the, what, what do they call the Burrell job, whatever that job is, yeah, the high representative, that has grown a lot. Um, and there are provisions that the European Union has worked with that allows, um, I don't want to be too strong about this, but allows the European Union for its operations to use existing command structures that live at the national level, national level, which NATO does as well, right? It's the same structures, right? What they lack is the really big headquarters and management structure that the shape has, right? And, you know, NATO doesn't have a central defense budget and neither does the European Union. NATO doesn't have a central military R&D budget and neither does the European Union. NATO and the EU have military planning that they do, programmatic planning, i.e., what do we want to have 10 years from now? What are, what, are the, what, are, what, are, what are the needs? And more or less the same people who do this wearing a European Union hat at one three-year tranche of their career will be doing it across town wearing a, a NATO hat and another tranche of It's the same people, right? Um, so I have this, this I'm being long-winded here because it's sort of poetical problem to discuss. Um, it, it, it's a kind of a, it's, it's a thing that moves, but it doesn't move very quickly, right? And um, you know, even in terms of EU-NATO cooperation, years ago, you could barely talk to each other. The people who did these things, even though they would ch change jobs, the institutions didn't talk. Now they talk all the time. They collaborate on this, that, and the other, right? So some of the old, I think, American-driven panic that the EU was going to supplant NATO has sort of dissipated a bit, even though Nicole talked about it because she hears it here in this town all the time, and it's to me, it's kind of silly, right? Um, but the... The problem really is what I said earlier, which is the American security umbrella is, is just a really great thing to have. It saves you not just money, but really significant political costs of one sort or another. And it would take a crisis of another sort for the EU to realize its potentials, which are all there. It's all hardwired in there. I mean, I, I actually view this as being a mobilization based for a much larger crisis. They've put in place a mobilization base for a much larger crisis. But if there were a crisis in transatlantic relations, if a certain person were reelected president and that certain person had the various issues that that certain person had before only accentuated by their vacation in warm waters, um, then I think that this mobilization base might have to be energized, right? Or if, you know, what people don't like to talk about, uh, if something very bad were to happen in Asia and 
you know, that's going to exert a magnetic draw, a gravitational draw on all of America's best forces, right? Europeans are going to watch the American mobilization base for crisis in Europe begin to disappear, and they're going to have to find a way to pull up their socks or whatever you want to call them. Uh, these structures give them something of a way to do it, but on the capabilities front, there's other issues which you can talk about. But I've talked to you long, but I, I think I've, I've triangulated on an answer to your question. It's not a clear and hard answer, but it's the best I can do. I can add to that. Um, so as I said in, in, in my introductory remarks, I don't think there is a secret scheme of kind of taking over and pushing the gringos out. Um, quite the contrary, really. Uh, and, and I agree with what you said, that, that the common security and defense policy is something that moves very gradually. So yes, there is a buildup, and yes, the EU military staff is growing, but it's, it's happening very slowly. Uh, and if, uh, one of the documents that I, I would recommend reading in this regard is the EU's strategic compass, because this really sets out the EU's agreed vision for the next 10 years, saying very clearly what it's planning to do. And this does not include, as I said, collective defense, but it does include crisis management. It includes a lot of issues uh, regarding resilience. It includes much more consolidation on the capability side and forging partnerships like with NATO, right? But if you look, for example, and you mentioned the Franco-German Brigade, and I think uh, it's an interesting example. So I think one of the problems, and if we look, you know, one of the things is collective defense, but the other thing where we have already seen in the past 10 years that Europeans actually need to be more autonomous in certain areas is crisis management. So if you look at crisis management in Africa, if you think to the Libyan intervention, if you think to the Central African Republic, think about the Sahel zone, about Mali. The problem here was that Europeans were willing to go in and to fend, defend their security interests in the region, which are obviously stronger than American ones, but they still lacked the capabilities. They lacked strategic enablers. They lacked intelligence. They lacked UAVs. They lacked air-to-air -air refueling. So all these things um, they still had to rely on the Americans. And I think this is where this narrative of strategic autonomy also comes from, that we need to be able to do that on our own, not only because we just want to do it, but because Americans are not so interested anymore to lead from behind in our own neighborhood. And I think this is something, if you go forward, um, I think what we need um, is actually a stronger division of labor. I mean, I... I, I agree, as I said, I think there will be mounting pressure, especially with the next presidential elections. Everybody's already extremely worried uh, about that in, in Europe. But there will be mounting pressure for Europeans to do more on collective defense. But if a crisis erupts uh, in the southern neighborhood in the Balkans, I think there will be even more pressure. Uh, and, and speaking about the Franco-German Brigade, um, this is an interesting project. But in practice, it hasn't really deployed together. So in the Sahel, the Germans were in the UN mission, in the EU mission, and the French part of this Franco-German brigade was part of France's national uh, operation Barkhane. Because of different caveats, because of, of, of yeah, problems of interoperability and so on. So I think this kind of integration is where Europeans should be heading but they still need to take a few, t a few steps. Just as a 
factoid. I'll bet you that the Dutch and the German militaries are much more tightly integrated than the French and the, uh, and the Germans. Okay, so we'll take a question from online now. Uh, so this is from Jason Castillo, and he asks, thinking about the recent increase in U.S. forces in Europe and the requirements of conventional deterrence, what is the best way NATO can deter a fait accompli like Crimea in 2014 against the alliance's eastern flanks for defense, mobile tripwire defense, tripwires? Everything depends on what you think the problem is. I mean, it, was, I, I, it was my perception, although I, I didn't really get in much into it analytically, that um, the, the original de deployment of the battle groups across um, the, the Baltics and the other Eastern European states was really directed against the Crimea-style threat. It was directed against a coup de main, right? And you know, the Russians needed a completely passive Crimea to be able to pull that off. Crimea was mainly populated by pro-Russian folks, and the Ukrainian forces that were defending were not very large, and uh, the, the Russians could kind of control the whole situation. Right, and they already couldn't have done that in the Baltics, but I think much of the preparation since then has been designed to fix it so that they can't. So that the only way they can take a Baltic state is by having a real war. And then, so that takes it to the next level, which is to say, you've got to, you can't sneak in and take this place in slices with people wearing funny clothes and, and, and pretending to speak a local accent. You, you just have to send an airborne unit or an armored unit, and we're going to see that. That's going to spin us up. It looks like a war. The locals are going to fight. You're in a war with NATO, right? So the, the real question is, you know, does it make much sense in the Baltic states to do more than that? Right, and um, I confess that, that I, I've been very skeptical that there's much of anything that you can do to defend the Baltic states if the Russians want to take them, right? Um, even the fantasy that the Baltic states have, which is to fill the place up with NATO armored brigades, is not that great a solution because the Terrain and topography is just so unfavorable to defense, right? Um, and essentially what you're, you're begging the Russians to do is remember what they used to plan for and train for, which is a fast armored offensive, and to essentially cut you off, right? So you're trying to supply dozens of, you know, thousands of NATO troops through this narrow Suwalki gap or through the Baltic, which is by Kaliningrad, which is full of anti-ship missiles. So, it's just a crummy place to have to defend. And this was never really discussed when they were brought into NATO. It's just crummy, right? So my own view is that if you think the Russians, if what you've seen in, in Ukraine said, well, they're will, little willing, they're more willing than you might imagine to, to do really kind of, you know, very bold and risk-accepted things with airborne units and light units. And, and okay, so look at your situation, say, okay, well, let's make that a little more costly. I, I see the point. If your problem is, look, they're gonna line up six or eight or nine, or how many armored brigades do we think they sent in Ukraine? 40, uh, maybe 40 they got together. Um, if that's your problem, then trying to defend directly is not the solution, right? There, there are conventional solutions, but that's not it. 
right? The conventional solution is one that the Baltic states won't like and that a lot of people in the West won't like either, which is you have to build up, be prepared quickly to build up a very large armored force in Poland and be, be prepared to either attack Kaliningrad or attack Belarus and cut the Russians off. That's what you have to be able to do. That's the way I think an actual military planner would plan. And we don't like to talk about that because this business is about aggressing against Belarus or aggressing against Kaliningrad or leaving the Baltic states to defend themselves while we try and mount this relief operation. It, 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 it doesn't make people feel very good. What people want to believe is that they have a shield. They have a Maginot line. It's just not the way forces really work. Right? And I think our effort, if we, if, we get, if we try and chase that tail, we're going to waste a lot of money. We're not going to be very successful. We're going to set up a failed deadly defense system. To me, it's all, it all looks... It looks wrong and it feels wrong, right? Based upon the, all the armored wars that I've fought, which is exactly not framed. Yeah, I mean, just to, to add to that, I think what you described was is very much the military dimension. I mean, you're much more of an expert on that. Um, but I think there's also very important psychological and political dimension. And I mean, if, if I speak to my friends uh, in Eastern Europe um, and hear from them that they are sometimes preparing escape plans, a lot of them actually. Um, so there is a real threat perception. And I think that this, these statements that we, we hear from, from President Biden, but also from European leaders, this willingness to, to defend every inch of the territory, I think this is very important. And I think this is also being heard. Yeah, and I think it works. It, I don't believe every inch can be defended, and I think an effort to defend every inch is actually going to ensure that you can't defend anywhere and that the Russians don't take you seriously. Right? I just think it's not doable. And I think I, I, somehow I think that there, there's a disjunction between our military planning and our political messaging. Right? It, it sounds good when they say it, right? but it doesn't mean what they think. Say it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it, it just, this drives me up a wall. Right? <laughs> Do we have another in-person question? Um, let's do one from this side. Let's... Hi, my name is Julian. I'm a student at Georgetown and an intern with Cato. So my question's on the domestic implications of what expanding our NATO commitments might look like. Um, just putting aside questions of how it affect European security or autonomy, what would it do to our pivot to Asia, which is one of the few consistent foreign policies we've had across the last three administrations. <laughs> yeah, you know, I see my my former student Eric Labs, who was at the Congressional Budget Office, and you know, I basically, you know, what's the answer that, that someone from CBO or PA and E, where I worked many many years ago as a fellow, it's it all depends on how much money you're willing to spend, right? Uh, and, and you know. It, it apparently in the United States will spend any amount of money on defense, right? And you know, although when we want to spend money on this, that, or the other, someone asks about pay fors. But when we want to spend money on defense, no one asks ever asks about pay fors. They just put it on the master national mastercard and and uh, and and proceed, right? So uh, our defense budget is on track to reach a trillion dollars. That's my. I don't think it's be very long. I don't know what Eric would say, but I think that's that's where we're going. Now, you can ask, is that going to solve the problem? Who knows, right? One, one, you know, just, I'm babbling here, but one problem any of us have is that, uh, so, especially in, in the United States uh, today, so much of our combat power that we think we have stems from high technology that we think we have. 
Um, and it doesn't show up as another ship or another division. It shows up as a fancier weapon or a fancier intelligence asset or a fancier computer that we think is going to make the systems we have so much more effective that we can do a lot more with them. Uh, could be it might work, might not. I have no idea, right? Um, there, there's a cross-cutting problem in the American military, which is that the, the military doesn't want to hire any more people. They don't like people, really, as far as I can tell. People are just a pain in the neck. They cost you a lot of money. Right? They want it. They want money. They want technology, but. I think the military is what, 1.4 million now, 1.5 now? What's the size of the American military? Uh, I'm, look, I'm looking at you. <laughs> I'm looking at you because you're, you're my only friend in the room. <laughs> the Navy and the Marine Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just, the, the, we fought a whole long infantry intensive war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we grew the army very little. Um, uh, we grew the force very little. We just simply stressed the hell out of the force, right? This is a weird thing, and I think it just has to do with a deep aversion to trying to grow the size of the force. Um, so you will see a lot more money. Money will go in, and you will find it hard to know what capabilities came out, right? Um, and whether those capabilities are enough to cover both the commitment to defend every inch <laughs> <laughs> defend every inch of that very long border uh, and to be able to defend every uh, square nautical mile of water in the Pacific that we're, we're you know we're committed to defend plus the, the countries we're committed to defend right so you'll see a lot more money you'll hear about new fancy things being bought you won't see that much growth in the forest structure and it'll be up to our enemies and our commanders to figure out whether you know, how far this rubber band stretches. And it's getting harder and harder for me to tell because I grew up in a time where you know you counted tanks and planes, and now it's there's all kinds of other stuff that's very hard to count. It's just a very small remark. To, I, I think this the policy that you has that you said is consistent for three administrations. I mean, if you look at the the memo of the defense review, it's still there, right? So there's this clear statement that although Russia is an acute threat, China is the pacing threat. And I find it quite interesting to compare this with the, the NATO strategic concept, which um, has very strong language on, on Russia and is, is mentions China, of course, for the first time, but more as a, as a kind of multidimensional challenge. And I think so you have some kind of mismatch perhaps between the two and this is something that you know I take home to Europe to actually tell people well this is still the priority and it's continuing and that's why we have to do more good on you <laughs> I'll send you a recommendation on that score. <laughs> so last question in like one sentence or less answer because we've gotten it a lot online if Trump wins in 24 what do we do you guys think does that change European security policy? Yes. <laughs> this changes everything. Yes, but not as much as you might think, because Trump will have the same problem that he had before, which is that the defense establishment that he has is the establishment that he has, and they will slow roll major change of this kind. That's what they did before. That's what they'll do again. Okay, well, thank you guys both for 
helping or talking. This is great. And thank you, everybody, both in person and online, for joining. If you're in person, uh, please join us for lunch. There's food and drink outside in the conference center. Uh, thank you. <laughs>